a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series, and we are here with Brahim Husseini, founder and CEO of Full Cycle, an investment firm focused on solving the climate crisis by backing companies with climate restoring technologies and accelerating their growth. Raised in Saudi Arabia by parents who are Palestinian refugees, Brahim moved to the US for college in the early 1990s and made his initial fortune from his college dorm room after starting a nutraceutical distribution company and selling the business in 1997. Brahim is an early investor in Thrive Markets, Tesla Motors, Bloom Energy, Aspiration, Cornerstone Capital, and Clean Choice Energy. Welcome, Brahim. Thanks, Gino. Good to see you. So tell us about where, where you're at in terms of your current circumstance. I'm asking people of late to actually meet the moment. You know, I mean, a lot of people know you as founder of Full Cycle. Um, and during normal times, we may have opened up with that. But it's pretty hard to ignore the current circumstances in terms of the pandemic. And so how is your, just your personal self and your impact self meeting the moment at this time? It's been really um, reflective. It's been very bittersweet, obviously, you know, watching the economic devastation that so many people who weren't set up to withstand such a prolonged um, downturn, uh, these people are suffering and we're just getting started and that really breaks my heart. In fact, there's been a lot of requests for philanthropy around medical supplies and I feel like so many people have been stepping up in that area that I've focused a lot of my giving um, in, to the, in the form of short-term loans to small business owners to help keep their business alive because, you know, somebody might have expanded their restaurant or their hardware store um, just in the moment where the whole world shut down and that breaks my heart because having made my money as an entrepreneur, I know how hard that is and how much hope and dream space we create when we're building a business. And it's always towards a specific outcome and experience and to have that, you know, crushed because of no fault of the business owner's um, projections or no fault of his own or her own. I really just, that has meant that has weighed on my heart. That's where I'm focusing a lot of my attention these days. Uh, an area where is also bittersweet for me around this is just the, how clean the air is and how quiet Los Angeles is. It's such a delight to just go for a stroll now without all the noise pollution, the light pollution, the air pollution. And I know it's, you know, I know it's crazy to say this right now, but I'm, I'm not looking forward to having all of that come back. I'm not, I'm really enjoying 
just appreciate, like even the quality of the light has changed because there's so fewer particles, you know, creating all these unnatural colors, even though they're quote unquote beautiful, but just, you know, without having them in the space, the pinks are different, the purples and oranges are different. Um, it's just, and it's a pleasure to just inhale. What do you think is the, like, what do we need to do as an impact community to actually carry forth some of these things that we may be enjoying now? Uh, there's been this disruption, this dislocation, and things like you just mentioned. All of a sudden, the air is cleaner. Um, things are quieter. You can actually maybe even, you can actually feel your heart beat. Um, and just like you have this authentic presence in some way as you move through nature. Rather than us just returning back to our frenetic pace and flooding the roads with cars and then the airplanes and all of the other pollution emitting uh, technologies out there, I mean, what is it that we can do now rather than live in fear and anxiousness to actually prep ourselves so that when this crisis passes that we can say, you know what, there was a window of possibility. Let's make that a reality. It's a great question. And it actually, I'm going to take, uh, assuming that you don't, you know, challenge me on the response in such a way that makes me withdraw my vision for what I'm about to say, is I'm going to reach out to the, the, the mayors that I know in the U.S. and encourage them to find ways to, excel, to, first of all, strengthen internet infrastructure, accelerate the rollout of fiber optics in cities, so a lot of us can continue to work virtually without having to get in a car, contribute to urban sprawl, to traffic, to pollution. We're now used to it. We know it works. Business is being done every day. You know, the we're all wearing shirts and collars and boxer shirts on the bottom, and we're fine with it. The um, and it's you know it's working fine. Not every industry, not every meeting has to be done in place. We don't have to jump on planes anymore. I'm sorry for the airline industry. I'm sorry for the automobile industry, but it's, you know, the, the only constant in life is change. And this is a change that we want. You know, we want more people not commuting to work, but being as effective and efficient as possible working out of their homes. You know, I want to encourage these mayors to also um, maybe even invest or create incentives for investment in autonomous electric transportation such that all these ride-sharing companies can, you know, their price can drop to such a level that it doesn't make sense anymore for anybody to individually own cars or drive them. Because if the car is autonomous and electric, the all the profit ends up going to the Ubers and Lyfts and uh, other car, other ride-sharing companies, so they can drop the price significantly and still make a very healthy margin. And if their cars are electric, meaning either they're chargeable or run on hydrogen, we end up with a much quieter, cleaner uh, emitting transportation vehicle. And we need so fewer of them on the road because if a car's, if a car, AKA robot, transportation robot is running around a hundred percent of the time transporting people, then you need 95% less cars. Wow. So you mean we can start actually walking on the streets at that point? <laughs> because exactly. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah. We can make sidewalks much, much wider because there's no cars parked on the side of the road. We can have more space for 
uh, urban gardens that contribute to keeping, you know, the, uh, what is it called? Like the urban warming effect or something mm-hmm. down, you know, keep the air a little bit more moist, suck a lot of the pollution out of the air. I mean, there's so much that we can do in this moment of reboot and restart. And I really hope we seize it. And it doesn't just, we don't get sucked back up into the, hey, you know, the the marketing models that are going to bombard us right after all this goes away of, hey, is are you, do you, uh, are you unhappy in this area? If you only took this cruise, isn't life going to be grand again? All you can eat, all you can drink, all your problems, you're going to be handsomer, taller, thinner, smarter, richer if you just buy my product. I cannot, I'm so not looking forward to this level of manipulation to have all these corporations just get, turn us back into consuming hamsters on that, on that hamster wheel, just working to send them money. So exhausting, so not quality of life, so polluting. And, you know, just, there's no gross domestic happiness involved in that. No, not at all. So tell me where you think this, um, so some people have said that you know tech has a grip on public consciousness or collective consciousness more and more, and they've um, a couple articles have come out in the New York Times, Washington Post about we're seeing an unprecedented move to tech at during this time, and maybe touch on like what inning of baseball. I don't know if you're a baseball fan. I am. What what inning of baseball are we in when it comes to the potential for tech and how far of its spread and saturation could it um, um, play out in terms of this potential cosmic shift? I guess what I'm getting at is that in in some ways, people think that everything is already technology, but I personally have watched the situation and we're all mediated animals at the moment. Like nobody's meeting anybody per se, but a lot of logistics are being handled. Large-scale logistic delivery is only possible because of all the tech platforms that are around us. We're in. We're doing this podcast over Zoom right now, which is booming amongst people. Uh, telemedicine is booming uh, right now as well. And I'm guessing you already think that that's good and that's fair. But what does life look like even more heavily techy? like teched out? Or is there an opportunity to be analog at all after this crisis? So there's two schools of thought around the, you know, the the pending uh, robotic and AI, quote unquote, takeover, right? You know, there is the, you know, there's the doom and gloom, you know, there's going to be mass unemployment, there's going to be, you know, this uh, singularity, that is so much smarter than us, that's going to turn, you know, human beings into the matrix, et cetera, et cetera. That's one school of thought. I actually have a different school of thought and not because it supports my investments or anything like that. Cause I'm not a big, I'm no, I don't invest in tech for the sake of investing in tech. I only invest in the things that I want to see happen in the future. Meaning like, you know, I believe that the world we live in today is the world that we invested in 30 years ago. So if we invest, uh, if we make our investments today with the lens of what world do we want in 30 years, that is the world that we'll see 30 years from now. That is the, that is the 
thesis of my impact investing. It's not this haphazard who whatever makes me feel bad in the moment is where I direct my capital or whatever all my other rich buddies are putting money into. That's the hot new thing that we're going to abandon, you know, five minutes from now. I mean, I can't even tell you they're just raising, raising a climate fund. And, you know, dare I say the most impactful climate fund out there, you know, I get people who, you know, who just wake up one day on the wrong side of it and go, you know what, I'm taking a break from climate. It's like as if it's some sort of trend. Now they're now they're going to invest in refugees, which is great. I'm glad that they are, but it's just it's this is not about you know how I feel in the moment. This is about what is the future that I want, and for myself and the rest of the world. Anyhow, um, so my vision of what a future with robotics and AI looks like is a lot of the jobs that exist today that are mundane and let's say unfulfilling to certain people, those will go away because they can easily be replaced by a robot. And what that does is it frees us up to imagine what jobs look like in the future. So, you know, if you told, you know, people 20 years ago that, you know, we'd... (laughs) I don't know, we'd have a, 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 f- a phone that allows, you know, I don't know, all of these um, uh, dual speakers to get on a call with somebody across the world and teach them another language as a form of income. They'd think like you're talking about the Jetsons. But guess what I've been doing with some of my time? I've been learning French because I have an app that connects me to all these teachers around the world and they teach me French and we talk French and they correct me and we laugh and it's, you know, and I pay them whatever it is. Each one is different, 10 to $15 an hour. And this is somebody who, you know, like was not a French teacher six months ago. So there's all kinds of opportunities for us to contribute to each other and redesign the economy without having to have this fear that having access to, you know, intelligent uh, technologies can help us with. Because they will remove a lot of mundane things, but we will replace them with other things that are more fulfilling and allow us to have a much richer life instead of a 40, 50, 60 hour work grind, you know, to pay the bills, which most people get into. And then they only find out in their 70s that their life, you know, was spent predominantly just, you know, getting paid to, you know, to take care of the bills. There's no fulfillment, personal fulfillment in the process. And I think that opens up, technology opens up the possibility to have more choice and fulfillment in career becomes a much more of a possibility for the average employee or worker, sorry, because a lot of them will be independent. Now, how have you taken that that notion of fulfillment? So you were talking about the other, but when it comes to Brahim, you know, you had this moment where all of a sudden you realize like, wow, you know what? Climate is a part of where I can make a huge contribution given my experiences, given my insights, given my resources. Um, but why did you actually take on, there's a lot of different, you, you could have taken a very passive approach to helping out climate, but you dove in both feet 
and says, no, I'm going to start a climate fund I'm from scratch and I'm going to work with people globally. I'm going to put a team together. Where did that fire come from? Was it something in childhood, like an aha moment to realize like, hey, you know what? I'm not done here. I'm not done. It's like, yes, I have enough resources to do whatever I want. And I could choose a, a life much differently and a life much easier and probably a life with a lot less friction. But you chose differently. And so help, help, help us understand the why behind where you are at today. Um, so, so my, um, so I want to live in a world that works. You know, I want to live in a world that works and not just for me, but a world that works for everyone and everything. And what I mean by everything is all the other creatures as well. All the 10 million other creatures that also call earth their home and have evolved over billions of years, just like us and deserve to live and thrive just like we do. So, you know, we're one species, you know, out of 10 million multi-celled organisms on this planet. So we can't, you know, we've designed the world in such a way that we dominate it to such a degree that nothing else is allowed to live and thrive uh, on, on this planet but us because we seem to, to have an unsatiable appetite for resources and nothing is ever enough. And we don't just do this to other creatures, we also do it to ourselves, meaning, you know, the, the wealth disparity is massive. You know, we're always fighting for more, 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 more of the, of the resources. And, and I tell you, you asked about fulfillment. There's no fulfillment in that because, you know, we, it takes energy to ignore injustice. It takes energy to ignore the homeless encampment while I walk to my $12 a box strawberry organic grocery store. You know, it takes energy for me to ignore the fact that, you know, millions of people are filing for unemployment because, you know, they don't have a wealth advisor who's really good at making money on my, you know, public equities account as the market crashes and recovers and crashes and recovers, you know, there's the, it's a, you know, the game is rigged for those with money. And, you know, that's a whole other story, but that's not just, and you know, what's not just is it's not just to rob uh, the future from your child, like in every other child who was, you know, born uh, in a world where we have already started to experience the negative effects of climate change. And that is a very, very unstable future. You know, the argue, uh, you know, argumented, the arguably, sorry, uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, you know, Nathan didn't do anything to contribute to that. <laughs> You know, the so many children didn't do anything to contribute to that. The poor of the world didn't do anything to contribute to that. And they get to adversely be affected by its impacts. So why did I do this? Is because I'm very, I'm lousy at ignoring. <laughs> you know, I can't, not, you know, I can't pretend that everything's okay while I continue to indulge in quote unquote, whatever shiny bobble is put in front of me right now. And, you know, that makes a bunch of other 
people give me social accolades and clap and be like, wow, Brahim, you're awesome. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm awesome. And then just live my life inside of that uh, lie. I just can't do it. So the only thing I can do is be as effective as I can in reversing the trajectory that we're on. And I'm audacious enough and I believe talented enough to actually make a dent in the problem. You know, we all take inventory or some of us take inventory of the gifts that we have from time to time. And mine includes a lot of experience, a great network, a, you know, the, a, a, a deep understanding of the problem and the solutions, the market-based solutions to it. Cause I'm not a government person. I'm not an NGO person. I'm a private sector person. So compiling models that actually affect the solution is something that I know I've, you know, I have the capability nexus to make a difference in. So again, because I'm a lousy ignorer, you know, knowing that compels me just to put it into action. And that's what I did in 2013. And I did again in my second fund in 2018, 2019. <laughs> Sorry. You know what, it, you know, if I recall you sharing your story, um, uh, right, about the Full Cycle Fund, I think what's interesting is, is that there's a lot of shiny objects about how to address sort of climate uh, technologies, but, uh, or excuse me, the climate crisis through technology. And if I understand Full Cycle Fund, it's a, you're, you're actually choosing to say, hey, that's all great. You guys work on all that innovation, but there's already stuff out there that works. And it's a question of actually getting that stuff that works to work at scale and to work quickly at scale. And so maybe, first of all, confirm that that's the right thinking around um, your fund and, and your current team's effort. And then two, what does that actually look like in the world? Like what's happening out there as a result of the work that you and your team is working on? Yeah, thank you for asking. So, um... So the analogy I give around technology is we are so enamored with technology that we think the solution to everything is invent new technology or discover new technology. So first of all, I want to give you kind of an interesting data point. I'm an early investor in Tesla. Guess what the penetration of EVs are in the world 17 years later. I have no idea, but it's probably a lot less than what I think it is. Is it about uh, 5%? Less than 1%. Oh, wow. So, so this is how long it takes for new technologies to take hold. So um, we're like climate change is a race against time. We're already about 30 years late to addressing it. So if we're going to, you know, if we have a fire in our backyard, you know, the solution is to grab a fire hose and put it out, not invent new firefighting technology. You know, it seems exciting to invent new firefighting technology, but it doesn't actually address the problem. It just feels like it addresses the problem. And that's one of the issues that we had. That's what, when I say we are unapologetically pragmatic, I mean, we are unapologetically pragmatic. We are actually trying to affect the problem. So first thing we do is we find market-ready technology. 
market ready means that it's there's a NASA and um, and um, Department of Defense technology readiness levels, and they go from one to nine. We only choose technologies that are maximum, you know, uh, minimum seven or eight, which are ready for commercialization. So that's number one. Number two is these technologies have to be municipal scale. Like they can't be just a gadget. You know, uh, climate change is not a problem of plastic straws. You know, it's a, it's, the problem is the underpinnings of modern civilization, our systems, our water, energy, transportation, food, waste, systems are the problem. So you need system scale technologies to replace the existing 19th and 20th century technologies that are currently underpinning the world. Um, so it, 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 so these technologies have to abate a minimum of one gigaton or more of CO2 equivalent uh, or CO2, which is we, we reach that level of scale by choosing technologies that abate uh, the other greenhouse gases, not CO2, most people don't realize that even everybody's talking about CO2. CO2 is the, the dominant greenhouse gas. It's 76% of atmospheric greenhouse gas. The remaining 24% are other gases that are hundreds and thousands of times more heat trapping. The, a misnomer is uh, calls them short-lived climate pollutants. They're only short-lived in their current form and eventually break down mostly into CO2 anyway. So you have a double whammy, but they make up 24% of atmospheric greenhouse gases, but are responsible for close to 50% of the warming. So you, you know, we focus on those first because those are the low-hanging fruit. We find the places in the economy that they're produced, and we find technologies that are market-ready, and we design a relationship with these technology companies such that their products are standardized, so they're not doing these, you know, one-offs all the time that take a long time. You're just like, what size plant do you want? You want small, medium, or large? Great. You know, uh, you pick that, it gets shipped in a certain amount of containers. We have a agreement to underwrite the, the, the plant. So we produce, so we standardize the offering and we fund the plants. And this way we become an acceleration ecosystem mm. for these technologies. So not only do we find them and invest in them, but we also invest primarily in their projects such that we have a, a mechanism that accelerates the rollout of this technology worldwide because, again, this is a race against time. And fortunately, that model uh, creates an asymmetrical risk return profile for investors because they're basically getting infrastructure type risk, but with PE type returns all while getting the highest return on carbon in as the bonus or as the uh, intention based on where the investor is coming from. So, you know, I don't mean to be down on all the other climate funds. I'm not at all. I'm an investor in a lot of them, but I understand that their technologies won't make a dent in the problem for decades, not for years, for decades. Because just because even when the technology that they invested in early in the pilot or demonstration stage, it's going to take a long time for it to be commercial, then it has to take hold. And like I said, with Tesla, 17 years, 0.75%. So less than 1% of all cars on the road are EVs. And that's just, you know, that, that, you know, that's 
not only Tesla. That's all of them. Yeah. So to give you an idea. So like where, like um, after reviewing systems, and like where does that inertia and friction occur that even even somebody uh, or something as large as Tesla, which has enormous amount of resources that, I mean, they keep plowing into this and other large companies are plowing into this. Um, where's the inertia on that execution? Like why, you know, to me, what's amazing right now about the coronavirus is the amount of immediate coherency, how the entire globe has pretty much coordinated itself within about 30 to 60 days and we're all heading in the same direction, all doing the same thing. Now we could actually, with a similar coherency around anything, we could potentially just shift the dynamics overnight. If there's one blessing in this all, is as we realize the entire globe can get on the same page really fast. Yep. Like everybody is almost sheltering home right now across the whole globe. I mean, you see images coming out, barbershops are closed in Brazil and India in Saudi Arabia, you name it, everybody's closed right now. And this all happened like within a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, so, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crisis of leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, the, we have a, you talk about inertia, inertia puts a, you know, puts a undue weight on economic growth versus, you know, planetary health. You know, I mean, this is, it's everybody wants to kick the can forward and let it be someone else's problem. You know, everybody, we're a power hungry, uh, distrusting, divided planet that needs a lot more unification. And because we all face the same problems, this COVID crisis has woken us up that we are all connected and we're all in this together. And it's a perfect parallel for climate because what emissions happen in Brazil and China affect the food, the agricultural yield in the Midwest and America, you know, affects water quality in Africa. You know, the hurricanes that hit uh, certain parts of the world affect insurance prices everywhere. So it's there. We are all connected and that is, the, the biggest problem we have is we have politicians who lie all the time and obfuscate the, and we need real leadership in this domain. We need the wealthy countries and their leadership to lead and, you know, come together and create, put a global price on carbon that is meaningful enough such that the economies of the world start shifting to a low carbon future. We have to do that and we have to do it 30 years ago. So it's, that's how critical this is. And what we're going through right now with this virus is going to be repeated time and time again, because if you want to relate it just to the virus piece alone, not to droughts, not to hurricanes, not to floods, you know, not to all the other catastrophes that'll come from the climate crisis, but just the viruses alone, I will remind everybody that there are ancient viruses trapped in glaciers and in permafrost that humanity has never been exposed to that we will get exposed to. And they're not just a mutated SARS virus. They are a whole new 
um, species of, or sorry, uh, strain of viruses that we've never seen as as human beings. So as as permafrost melts and as great glaciers recede, the world will meet ancient viruses that God knows will wreak what kind of havoc on the economy. So if you care about the economy, you better fix the planet, the climate crisis immediately. Wow. Well, with all that said, I mean, how do you, um, you know, I mean, we've been all talking about big meta stuff, but you, Brahim, as a person on a day-to-day basis, I mean, how do you stay centered in the midst of all this? I mean, what do you still like to tap joy and laughter and like feeling just some, you know, some inner peace? Because obviously if, I don't know if you're like me, but if I read about this stuff all day and all night, there's a certain amount of restlessness in my heart, a certain amount of agitation, a certain amount of frustration. And then I ask myself, is this the person that I really want to be when I go into the house and meet my two-year-old and play and play blocks with them? And so I'm asking, you know, as I navigate the world with all these uncertainties, with all these things that we're all trying to do, I mean, how do we stay grounded? I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche, but then again, it's really not because it's a felt sense of how 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 are you staying centered, calm, restful, and sort of you know joyful and sort of keeping your feet light during all this. So um, vulnerably, I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm. I. I'm. You know, uh, this is like I'm obsessed with this mission. And it occupies a lot of my emotional, mental, psychological bandwidth. Um, and you've met my wife. She is a extremely light, joyous, happy being. So being married to her always lifts me up because just, you know, just having her be herself around me, even if she's just around making a sandwich, you know, (laughs) she's singing while she's doing it and her eyes are bright and her smile is wide while she's making a sandwich. And that just reminds me, like just lightens my load all the time. So children light my load all the time. I, I mean, I, when I have LPs who join my fund, I always encourage them to put the investment in their children's name because that reminds me who I'm fighting for every day. Oh, nice. I like and that, that. That also, you know, just brings me joy because, you know, the, you know, there's like innocence brings me joy. You know, there's that. And I just want to protect all of these innocent beings, you know, whether it's a butterfly, a whale, a dolphin, children, you know, the artists, you know, those, those of us that are, you know, have their being focused on less <laughs> dramatic matters than, you know, people like you and I do. And with that said, I realized that I have a call apparently at 1230. Is there, you know, I thought it was at one, but apparently it's 1230. I apologize. What do you want to do? All good. We're, actually, that was the final question. I want to thank all of you for uh, listening to Brahim Husseini. This is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. Thanks so much, Brahim. We really uh, have enjoyed hearing your story. And I know there's so much more, perhaps maybe part two in a year or so. Looking forward to it. Great to see you.
Good deal. Thanks, Brahim. Bye, friend. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.